Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Hi, my name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis. I've lived with rheumatoid arthritis for 17 years, and I'm also a mom, teacher, and occupational therapist. I'm so excited to share my tricks for managing the ups and downs of life with arthritis. Everything from kitchen life hacks to how to respond when people say you don't look sick, stress, work, sex, anxiety, fatigue, pregnancy, and parenting with chronic illness. No topic will be off limits here. I'll also talk to other patients and share their stories and advice. Think of this as your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. I'm so excited today to have Sukjean on the Arthritis Life podcast. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Like, this is really amazing. Oh, I'm so, so glad you're taking the time. And um, I would just love for you to start, just tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your relationship to chronic illness. Uh, so yeah, so I have rheumatoid arthritis. I'm sure like your listeners know enough about that condition already. Um, but in my relationship with um, chronic illness has been up and down. Uh, to start off with, it was quite hard to accept, which I'm sure is like a, a universal thing with chronic illness but I think the the thing that I struggled with um and why I struggled with accepting it was um partly to do with like my background and the fact that um being isolated and you know loss of mobility meant going online for a lot of help and support with the with um, this condition and so many of the people that did have the condition that I would find on like places like Facebook or Instagram were predominantly white and that kind of it just kind of uh, got to me a bit because it felt like I had to erase 
that my background basically and I had to pretend like there was this whole part of me that never existed um and it made it harder because that that isn't really a safe space to be and to find acceptance in that in that space um it's really uncomfortable and it makes it actually more isolating um so towards the start uh, when I was first diagnosed it was it was a struggle um but with time and you know finding people that do look like me and have the same condition and even I found one lady is the same age as me and it was just I, I can't even tell you like how it felt it, it felt like amazing to know that you genuinely aren't alone because so many people say that to you when you're diagnosed but you don't really like believe it until you actually do see that for yourself and I think once I did find people like that I I started to open up and accept my my illness and yeah but it, it's been up and down and I think you know from everything I've experienced and getting to this point um, I'm I'm more on the positive side of chronic illness and learning to live with it a bit more and um, it, it's been getting better so um, you know with medications and other things that have been helping me um, so on the on the whole it's it's positive now <laughs> well, that's that's wonderful and I know that'll bring a lot of hope to people listening because a lot of people listening are on the newly you know diagnosed side trying to find their way and I'm just I'm really grateful you're you know bringing awareness to the audience about how predominantly white the chronic illness online space is um because yeah it 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 can be isolating for anyone who's not basically like a white female because also yeah. gender there, you know, I've also heard similarly from people who are male or identify yeah. as male that they don't feel comfortable in the same way that people, you know, in different cultural groups, you know, feel like, wait a minute, where's, where are people who can identify with my unique experience, right? The intersections aren't always addressed and it can be different. Um, and that isn't always known from white women so that that's kind of when you start to erase it because if they don't understand it then you start to believe that it's not an issue when actually it should be addressed and it should be you know represented in the right way as well yeah I'm I'm just I'm so grateful you've come on to to discuss you know how culture affects people's experience of chronic illness and disability and just disclosing in case you don't see the giant picture of me on this podcast. I am white American woman. I grew up in the United States and in a very homogenous area um, in the the Pacific Northwest, which actually has a large Southeast Asian and um, Asian population. But, um, you know, I personally, you know, grew up as part of the, like, for example, in my elementary schools and everything, you know, Caucasian people were the um, most commonly represented cultural groups. So I'm having you here. I'm like telling my whole story for you here to um, explain your ex- experience. And also, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your nonprofit called Chronically Brown. And um, what does it mean to be brown? I, that's such a broad question, isn't it? Like it, 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 it touches on a lot of things, the word brown. Um, I feel like it's kind of an umbrella term. Um, you know, and a lot of people, a lot of different ethnicities identify with brown. Um, and I think it's it's mainly a term I use um, it to kind of like collectively talk about a lot of people. 
but same with like South Asian. Um, however, like my specific background is, you know, I'm Indian. I'm from uh, my grandparents are from Punjab. Um, that's the correlation there. But but to be brown, I, I don't even know where to start. Like <laughs> it's a lot of things. It's it's a it's a culture that I absolutely love and I'll wear on on me uh, you know I'd always be open to talk about and chat with people about being brown is 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 good and it's difficult there's pros and cons to it there's so many lovely things about it that um you know I, I love to share and love to you know from our clothing and you know our spiritual sides the religions the the colors the uh, foods everything is absolutely beautiful and I love sharing them um I love it being a part of me like it's taken me a while for me to ever say something like that um you know I, I was actually similar to you I have grown up in a white area and so I I've had most of my life erasing my background so it's took me a while to to come to this stage at all but you know the the cons around it is the fact that the culture is I don't know how to describe it best, but that there's parts of it that exclude very big groups of people, including people like with disability. And uh, you, that's kind of where I was going with Chronically Brown is to address um, in, in my nonprofit to address the stigmas that South Asians face when they are disabled or when they have chronic illnesses, because it's not fair that we're excluded from the South Asian community and then also excluded from disabled and chronically ill communities because we're not represented as much so it's it's kind of bringing them both together and I, I guess that was also part of the name and bringing you know chronic illness with chronically and then bringing brown and you know having the name chronically brown is bringing those two communities together um so that, that was the whole purpose around it and and um, hopefully it, it continues to go that way and to help people um, in best they can and with improving representation. Um, it, it's a really big stigma within the community and it really, really needs to change. And the only way we can change it is by addressing it. So that's where we're starting. <laughs> yeah, th that makes so much sense. And I think you, you used the word intersectionality earlier, which, you mm -hmm. know, if people don't know, that's like, instead of just looking at each aspect of someone in a silo, right? Like you're a woman, mm -hmm. okay, there's gender. And then like you're South Asian, okay, there's culture. They overlap and or you have a chronic illness. These are like, sometimes people look at them as just three separate, you know, buckets or yeah. aspects, but they all intersect. And you said it so beautifully how, you know, you're, you're almost like double excluded because you're excluded from the chronic mm -hmm. illness community because it's predominantly white and then you're excluded from your own south oh, tell me if this is correct that that you felt excluded from your own south asian community because they excluded people with chronic illness yeah, yeah that's completely right yeah it's that's such exactly a how it feels and it, it's really really isolating to be in a situation like that because I, I know so many people know already chronic illness is isolating enough uh but then when you're isolated from the community that's meant to be there for you. Uh, the same goes for South Asians and, you know, excluding that they're meant to be there for you, but exclude you because of your chronic illness. It, 
it becomes like it, you don't know where you stand with anyone and you don't know who you can turn to anymore because there's no specific place for you um, and that's when it becomes really really isolating and I know that's how I felt and I'm sure a lot of other people felt as well. Yeah can you expand a little bit um, about some of the stigmas specifically around disability um, in South Asian culture? I know I don't want to say like you have to be the mouthpiece for everyone but just in your experience what what are some of the stigmas? Yeah, so um, there's this common term within the community um, and it's basically what will people say um, and it's used with a lot of taboo, topic, to- taboo topics, oh my god, <laughs> um, and it, it includes disability and chronic illness um, but it also includes other things like periods, uh, the lightness of your skin or colorism, um, you know, being from or having a different sexuality being a woman like it it kind of um it's kind of like if if you're any of those things be a little bit quieter because you're not as accepted as much and we don't want those kinds of things ruining our reputation um and you kind of always forced to keep this picture perfect like image um and always show it because of this term and this mentality. Um, and in regards to disability, that, that kind of affects it because um, you're kind of told, don't take medications in front of people, don't show that you're ill in any way with like sharing your symptoms or your diagnosis or that you have to get to a hospital appointment or you know, uh, if you use mobility aids, don't use them. It's, it's really upsetting. <laughs> Um, that it, it comes to this stage because within this culture as well we, we do have so many family events um, there's always a wedding or there's always go visit this person this person you've got to see this person it's just a lot and then when you're forced to hide something that is like such a big part of you it's hard to even I don't even know how to describe it. It's it's just very, very difficult to hide that that part of you because like I just said, it's just a big part of you. Something that I've experienced is um when I've met family members is that they they always have um I guess like a medical lens on what chronic illness is and what disability is and they always want to try and fix you, um, or cure you. <laughs> and um so you, as well as trying to keep things quiet to not ruin an image, you're also trying to keep things quiet so that people don't give you constant advice and keep double checking, are you trying this, are you doing that? Um, Because it kind of, it puts you down. It almost feels like you can't, you're not trusted to take care of your own health, Um, that you're not, I guess in my case, I'm not old enough to take care of my my own health. I'm still treated like a child and I, I know there's so many people in older generations I still feel like this because so many people ask me have you tried this have you tried that and you're like I do everything to take care of my health and I shouldn't be made to feel that way just because you think you know better or you know or you know someone that's done better and I'm sure, sure that's a common you know um thing within chronic illness communities but this community in particular is just absolutely they, they don't give up 
<laughs> they don't give up. They just keep going. Yeah, yeah. I really, I just appreciate you talking about all this. this and as you're talking, it just it really just, to me, it brings out that it's like you're being it, it, all of these different elements, like saying you have to keep a picture perfect vision, don't show it. What will people say? It's kind of like underneath all that is like you're not enough, like you're not whole, you're not complete, you know? And that's such a sad message to get from, you know, and it takes such a strength to be able to rebel against that. <laughs> I'm I'm curious how 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 did you and this isn't something we talked about before so feel free to you know be like I don't want to talk about this but how did you um, become comfortable being public about you know it's publicly starting chronically brown so it's not been a big thing within my family um, that that kind of term but I've always been aware that it is. Um, for extended family members or um, just people I've spoken to uh, within the community that they, they've also experienced it. And um, because I haven't actually experienced it to that extent, I've always, like there's always an underlining um, feeling you kind of get like, don't say this specific thing or don't say that, but they don't actually say the words like, oh my God, what will that person say if you say that? So. I've always felt like there's always an element of keep this a secret, don't tell this person, don't tell that person. Um, but not to the extent other South Asians have felt. And I, I kind of wanted to use, um, I guess, that privilege uh, to talk for, you know, people within this community, because it's it's not fair that anyone has to go through that and has to um, raise that thing. And uh, I mean, as far as rebelling, um it, it kind of kind of came about because I, I've never been like a, a loud person or an outspoken person I've always been really quiet and I just let things be um especially as a kid like like I said before like it, it was a very white area um you know grew up experiencing racism like basically on a daily weekly basis um and I just let it happen and because it first of all I didn't know what to do it and I was outnumbered in a sense as well um so I grew up like that and I just let it be let it be and then I think my first year of university I was I was like free of that and everyone kind of accepted me for being South Asian being brown and um it was a completely different experience and then when I was diagnosed because I was diagnosed while I was at university um after my first year towards my second um it got really isolating because no one actually wanted to understand what I was going through and no one wanted to even check up on me or you know uh just it it became like all my friends basically disappeared they they didn't want to um socialize the same way we were before um kind of felt like I was an outcast again and I just got really annoyed and I was really angry and you, you know how like chronic illness like changes you as a person because like the healthy you is completely different to the chronic illness me and this person in me is more outspoken because I was fed up basically um, and I just put that fed up feeling and anger into this and I've just 
become really passionate as a result um and make sure like all the the values and the 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 things that chronically brown stands for is always at the heart of everything we do and make sure that everything fights for the bigger outcome and the bigger goal because if i don't do that then i've gone through all of this stuff without anything coming out of it and um yeah i I think that's the biggest reason why i started to rebel i guess (laughs) i'm not sure if i call it rebelling or (laughs) if it was just just the thing i went through and i just decided like i've had enough now (laughs) that that's a beautiful transformation though from like taking (laughs) this really painful experience and turning it into like your purpose currently Mm -hmm. you know i think that's I, I mean, I feel inspired listening to that, especially because like for me personally, I'm a very outspoken person, <laughs> never like, you know, basically as a child told to like stop talking so much. So for me, it's it's <laughs> yeah. easy for me to like become a, you know, outspoken talk. And also again, all, everything intersects, right? Being, you know, having white privilege and makes it easier for me, less risky for me to speak out. Yeah, that's like a really powerful origin story for for Kron. It's, like <laughs> it's like your superhero. Super, yeah. yeah, literally, it's gonna say the same thing. It's like a superhero story. Now I'm gonna go fight crime. <laughs> yes, yeah, the crime of ableism. No, it's perfect. Actually, <laughs> I can see a book coming out of this. <laughs> oh gosh, no, yeah. I don't think I could be doing that. <laughs> another another project on your plate, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. And I know um, one thing you and I have both spoken about um, that I want to hear your take on is you mentioned briefly earlier medication shaming. And Mm -hmm. um, is there anything more you wanted to say about, you know, medication shaming? What what's wrong with medication shaming, I guess? Also, like specifically with respect to, to, you know, South Asian cultures. Yeah. I think there's there's two parts to this. Um, like within South Asian culture, it it Western medications are not always accepted. I guess um, they they always think there's always some kind of herbal treatment that works better. Um, especially when it comes to disease and chronic illness and stuff. That I think it's more because um, so many of these herbals work with acute illness, um, and they can't really they don't have the right information when it comes to chronic illness and um, they they start to think that they it will work the same and then you'll be cured no matter how much you tell them they don't know that it, it's a lifelong thing um, so they, they never really understand why why we take western medications um, and it, I think it's part of the reason why um, we're told not to take medications or at least um, we're also told, told to not show that we need medications uh, you know I, I think it's maybe a, a sign of weakness but um, that's my personal opinion on it and I don't think that's actually probably what it is but it, it it's always something that we should feel shameful for and we should always hide um, when it comes to being around others um, and that that's not where where it should be and as much as I try to educate um, it, it's it's the one that's quite been quite stubborn <laughs> with medications um but at the same time it's it's kind of there's a whole flip side to this that i recently realized and um it's kind of been bugging me a bit um because within the chronic illness community we, we kind of 
from what I've seen anyway, I'm not sure if this is this is wide, uh, but recently it's been kind of irritating me that we kind of bash things um, that South Asian culture uses as treatment. So like things like yoga or, you know, we, we used um, turmeric and, you know, all those kinds of things. Like those are natural within a culture and we use pretty much every day for some people. And um, to have it shamed within the chronic illness community kind of brings me down because there's nothing wrong with them <laughs> and they're actually really good things when they use correctly and I only say that because yoga especially has been colonized and we're against as a, as a chronic illness community we're really against the colonization of yoga and the unsolicited advice so for it to be twisted and not saying oh we're against unsolicited advice don't give unsolicited advice it's become don't tell us to use do yoga <laughs> and that's where I'm kind of getting irritated because it's the language we use as well as the community is what's excluding South Asians from that community and is instead making us feel like we don't belong there um, and yeah it's just something I've recently come to realize and although I really really do try to educate the South Asian community I feel like there's a little bit that also need the chronic illness and disabled community need to realize as well because there's a reason why we're excluded and why we feel excluded and we just kind of need to get to the bottom of it to open up these you know um, conversations and actually change our behaviors and that's only a small thing, it's just language. So I feel like if we can change that language and realize that there's nothing actually wrong with yoga and there's nothing wrong with like these herbals as well, um, it's just the way we use them. And we're probably getting our information from the wrong places. You know, the best places for them is within South Asian communities. That That's really powerful. And I know the shorthand phrase of just try yoga, it has become like a signifier in the chronic illness community for unsolicited advice, like, like you said, and it's, um, it's so important to remember that. Yeah. In, in the same way that let's say the spoon theory, people use the idea of spoons and they're not talking about literal spoons. We're talking about energy units, but when it comes to just try yoga, you have to remember that the words that you're using, you're actually talking about a South Asian um, origin practice. And so yeah. I, I think that that's something that I, I want to do a better job of. I actually did stop using that just try um, yoga because someone did call me out on it. And I hadn't, I'd be honest, I, in my mind, it had become such a shorthand for unsolicited advice. I hadn't really thought of the words, like you said. So examining our language is so important. When With respect to culture, we have to remember yeah i think this is hopefully really a good point if for everyone but for anyone who grew up with, with a very westernized idea of like what is you know, yoga is this like commodified thing that like women and like white women in like Gwyneth paltrow do and not like wait yeah. a minute actually that's not where it originated so yeah. is there any other like examples you can you would want to share about like language changes or um, phrases in the community that people might want to examine when it comes to culture? For the most part, the disabled community is 
is actually um you know welcoming and accepting um it's just you know the, these few things that need to be addressed and changed um i'm sure there's some things that i've probably missed um because as a community we kind of get used to the way things are so it, it becomes really hard to find out and figure out what's wrong so i'm sure there's things i've missed and I will probably come across in the future and go, oh, yeah, I probably should have done that. I probably mm-hmm. should have said this about that. Um, uh, but Correlated with white, white people, white doctors, yeah. male doctors. You know, so I could see how also just the phrase and herbal remedies. And I think this is I, I'll just share my in, in case anyone else is like struggling with this. I do. I have a hard time because I I try to be a good patient educator when it comes to, you know, you know, I understand being afraid of Western medicine, but, um, you know, there's risks and benefits to anything. There's risks and benefits, you know, to herbal remedies, mm-hmm. but I would never want to like bash someone's culture if, you know, it represents thousands of years as tradition too, you know? So yeah, yeah I think it's. I think with that, it's just, um, making sure that there's the right person speaking about it, um, because I feel like for me, I can I can talk about the the stigmas and the all the wrong things about the South Asian community. But you know, if if that was to come from you, that would be a whole nother story. Because it kind of it comes across as if you don't like the South Asian community and you're against it. And so it really does uh, depend on who it comes from. I think as well, um, it's a different thing when I say it. It's a different thing when you say it. Um, and that's when representation comes into play as well. Um, you know, having conversations like this can only really be started and addressed with the right person from the right community, really. Such such a powerful point. It's like reminds me of those examples online. Well, they'll they'll put a picture of like, here's a table of like nine men and one woman who are tasked with like you know the women's health task force you're like okay you might want to get you know in the same way you wouldn't want like a let's talk about culture and diversity with like a table of like 10 white people it doesn't make any sense so yeah I really again appreciate and I know that there is also an element where it's it's emotional and labor for you to have to sit here and explain all of this to, to me, a white person and uh, the audience. So I want to also just acknowledge that time and labor that's going on, not just in this, you know, hour long interview, but also in all the other advocacy work, you and other, um, you know, people of non-white descent are doing. So thank you for that. Um, I just, came to my, my mind then as well as like um the same way we don't kind of expect every disabled person we come across to advocate for disability we can't expect every you know south asian person to advocate for them as well um you know i'm always happy to do it because like i guess this is what i've dedicated my, my time to with chronically brown as well um and i'm passionate about it like i said as well so i'm I'm always happy to do it, but you can't come across every every South Asian person and go, can you tell me about this and force them to talk about something? And they may not be comfortable with it too. And same for chronic illness and disabled communities as well, that that person might not even feel comfortable talking about that thing. And it's really going away and trying to figure out first yourself and finding it from the right sources as well. Um, you know, just like listening to this podcast, that's the right source to get it from. <laughs> Oh, thank you for, for that makes so much sense. And I, I know there are cases, especially like 
in the U.S. with the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, mm -hmm. there were a lot of people who suddenly were a lot of white people were like, oh, I want to ask my like African-American friend about something. And then they didn't kind of realize that, well, maybe that person doesn't want to speak to it yet. Or that's just, again, more emotional labor for them. So yeah. really, really good point. Not everyone wants to explain their culture to you or how their culture affects their disability or how they're not everyone with a disability wants to talk about it. So yeah, so, so important. The other thing that I really, I wanted to make sure to give some time to is you had a great series on Instagram, you know, the do's and don'ts when reacting to someone's chronic illness and what, yeah. Can you explain a little bit your motivation for, for sharing this on social media? Uh, yeah. So there was a big motivation behind this because um, I realized, no, I actually, I, I had a family friend um, speak to my mom um, I can't even remember how long ago and they, they said they were avoiding coming over um, for the reason why they, they didn't know how to say the right things about me and my illness um, so they avoided my, my parents altogether um, which was ableist basically extremely ableist and then when I realized that this is a common theme within the South Asian community to realize that that, that they, they don't actually know how to interact with disabled people. They don't know how to interact with chronically ill people because their experiences of people with these illnesses and disabilities is very limited. Um, they've never been exposed to that kind of life circumstance, I guess. Um, so they, they don't know how to talk to those people. And so as a result, they just avoid the person, which, you know, obviously leads to more exclusion and isolation. and I really just wanted to address how, what the right way is to do that, to, to bring up the conversation and kind of show like South Asians, like it's okay to talk to that person. And there is wrong things to say, but for the most part, no one's really going to be angry with you because we kind of appreciate the fact that you're even trying because we know that it's such a silent conversation anyway, that that we, we, we like those kinds of conversations. We like questions. But, you know, it, they were just kind of on, on Instagram, they were just kind of conversation starters, really, and how to open up the conversation, I guess, um, so that they can learn a few things. And then hopefully, you know, that will have a ripple effect at some point, um, which is the whole reason why I, I started it, um, to hopefully, you know, share and, you know, people can then share on as well and just decrease the exclusion in the South Asian community. Yeah. And I think so many of these, you know, are universal as well, which is a, a, mm -hmm. a benefit too. So like, for example, you know, you had, don't say you just need to push through it, you know, instead, like ask them, how can I best support you? But that's such a great example to me, because that's saying when someone says you just need to push through it, it's kind of like a, um, for me, at least that's a hard one because I always, before I got chronically ill, prided myself on, being able to push through things, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Um, I'm like, I know I want to, like, believe me, I would if I could, right? Yeah. So like, as you say here on the post, you know, it's dismissive and hurtful to say, just push through it. I guess you already touched on the whole idea of like, you know, my friend tried this and they're cured. Yeah. yeah I, I, even I've come across that and I'm just like, no, that's not the same. Because the, the other thing they don't realize is that chronic illness and disability is individual. 
even if it's mm. the same illness it's very individual um and the comparisons already within the south asian community like forget about disability and illness there's comparisons in everything there's comparisons in the jobs you do and uh, the life choices you make in everything and then when it comes to disability completely there's even more comparison yeah. um you're like oh well this disabled person's doing this and they're completely fine so why aren't you and you're like no that's not how it works it's it's really frustrating um and I can imagine it's frustrating that like, this isn't something I deal with but I know a lot of South Asians because there's so many family events and other things to be going to on a constant basis it can become really draining um and that's the whole purpose of it is to hopefully help that draining feeling because the people around them have actually been taught how to best approach that instead yeah it's so helpful and I'll definitely put that in in the show notes another thing I wanted to touch on is because some of the most of the audience of this hot podcast is other chronically ill people or patients, but we also have some medical providers as well, and some are both patient and provider, like myself. But you know, what some what are some things you would like medical professionals, like whether it's you know nurses, counselors, you know doctors, to know about the intersection of like Southeast Asian culture or South Asian culture and disability. Or just anything. This is your this is your platform to share any any <laughs> advice for them. <laughs> yeah, no, I was gonna say that so many professionals, like I don't even know where to start there. But um I think that the main thing is um is recognizing that it's not universal for everyone. And I feel like that's a really I don't I don't know how to best describe this. Um it, it's a very um blanket answer um but what I mean is is that it, it can be very different because of culture um and it's trying to learn why it's different um maybe you know talking to that person um I think as well something that I've never come across but I know so many South Asians do is um language barriers these kinds of barriers even though you know the the patients you may come across they they have english uh, as a first language or a second language and they they know multiple languages and you, you think their understanding of english is clear and complete it there may be some things that are like i guess medical terms that they may have never come across and it creates miscommunication and it's making sure that obviously not belittling them in any way but um, making sure that you, what you've described and explained to them has come across in the right way um you know maybe making sure like asking them questions about what you just said or you know just making sure they reiterate what you said back to you so that it's completely clear what it is because those kinds of miscommunication do have a ripple effect and I, I believe it's half the reason why we're dealing with such like a big stigma within the community because we, as a community we put so much um, emphasis on doctors and nurses and everything because we value what they, they think and what they say and if we think they've said something completely different to what they actually did say um, we hold that really sacred and then you know it becomes like a big 
stew of miscommunication and misinformation and all these kinds of things and it can become really really harmful um and it's actually half the reason why um i'm doing so many things with chronically brown is is to address that um but I, I do believe if medical professionals knew about this um, and knew how best to tackle it, um, it probably would be a lesser issue. I don't think the issue would disappear, but I think it would be a lesser issue and it would be easier to tackle. Or an interesting point, yeah, I know that at least in in my geographic areas, I've lived in um, the Bay Area, California, and then Pacific Northwest, Washington, and then New York. Um, there was a large population of um, Indian like doctors in in the in the healthcare field. So that was a that's something that you, you know you brought up that, that there's a respect of the profession of becoming a doctor or a medical provider, but at the same time yeah. also a respect of some of the herbal rem- yeah. So it's kind of a complex. Yeah, web. yeah. It, it's it's very confusing. I know sometimes when I explain it, I completely understand it in my head, but I don't know if it come across the same way because it's yeah, it like you said, it's so complex that when I explain it, it becomes. It, it, I feel like this podcast has become very messy because oh. I'm kind of like contradicting myself. But these are all very true things, and they they all do happen. It's just it's a mess. Oh <laughs> no, and I wasn't trying. To, I I I think I. I guess, except that all cultures are just completely messy. Yeah. You know, when you, when you start getting into the yeah. weeds, you know, it does, it's like, they all don't make perfect sense, you know? It, it, so yeah. I, I, I'm certainly not going to be like holding you to some sort of like, you must be perfectly consistent. You know, there's, I mean, how, <laughs> how many, aren't there like over 20 national languages represented in, in India? You know, there's so many different cultures within I'm sh- India. I'm not sure about just India. There's at least uh, 240 within South Asia. Wow. Um, and that's at least, and that, that, that was a crazy number to me. Um, mm-hmm. Because when I, when I started to think about um, getting, you know, accessible resources, that this was something that I had to, you know, look up on. And, and I was like, I don't know if I can do 240 languages at least, because that's a lot of work. Um, you know, there are common languages as well um, within these communities um you know as well that there's so many different it's it's kind of like the best way to describe it is kind of like there's accents um in each each region um but mm-hmm. they're not really accents they're classed as separate languages yeah yeah, <laughs> but that's, yeah. That, that's why it's such a big number is is there anything else you wanted to share with the audience about any of the topics we've talked about or anything um I think I think the only thing that I really do want to mention is making sure that we include South Asians in all of our work. Um, and that's, even if that's just trying to research and understand what it is our culture is like, um, you know, those kinds of things is what helps us to feel included, even if we're not there in the conversation. Um, you know, for example, the chronic illness community hasn't got a lot of representation for us. But if if there was a started conversation about it, that can really start to change things. And, you know, we'll, we'll start to feel included and you will see more representation. It, it's just making sure that we're always there because we are excluded so much. We're kind of like in the shadows and 
it's hard for us to get our voices heard. It's taken me quite a while to get to this point. Um, you know, within Instagram, within all those other kinds of social media, it, it's really hard to get your voice heard. And I know it is for other South Asians as well. So if, if you come across anyone, make sure you uplift their voices in any kind of work, not just social media, any kind of work. Um, make sure everything's diverse. And, you know, if you start to see people that looks just like you in every place you are, then you need to start questioning things. Um, you know, th there's just so much going on and with um, diversity and stuff. And I feel like that's the main takeaway when when you start to look at it really. That's that's beautiful. And I think an example just came to mind. Um, I'm on this volunteer email list for the American College of Rheumatology, which is the National Association for Rheumatologists mm -hmm. and Professionals. And they just put out a request for images of um, like not just pictures of people's faces, but like um, medical images of people's hands and, and other um, parts of their body that might be affected by rheumatic diseases like scleroderma mm -hmm. or rheumatoid arthritis that are non-white. Cause if you look in the textbooks, it they'll say things like, you know, like, so I'm like extremely pale Caucasian and you can really see when I'm flaring and I, which I am now it's pink. Like my joints are yeah. pink. And in the textbook, it'll, it used to say pink. Well, it's not going to look exactly pink on everyone's skin tone right yeah. so it's been slow right because it's 2021 like maybe this should have been done <laughs> earlier but hey you know all we can control is what we do in the present and in the future yeah. so those kind of efforts like are so important to support so just that's a simple thing uh, or an example but like you said you know anyone listening who you know, if you like such a good point, if you look at your own feed, look at your own, who you're following on social media, mm -hmm. if it's everyone exactly like you, you know, you, did you start the hashtag disability? So white kind of like Oscar. So white or too white. Sorry. No, no, I didn't start it. It was something that I came across though. Um, I think it was last year now. Um, and as soon as I realized that was being used, I was like, Oh my God, we're not the only ones because it, yeah. it wasn't just uh, about South Asians of course it was also about uh, black faces as well and you know all these other communities that we need to start showing within disability because it's become so predominantly white um, and I think it's starting to f affect a lot of people um, at least that's the reason why I started all my work anyway. Yeah no it's it's so powerful I mean I think a lot of us living with invisible disabilities understand the idea that, you know, you're, ha you're having like an invisible battle. And mm -hmm. so in your case, it's like, it's again, like doubly invisible because you're not represented within this greater invisible community. So yeah. I just, yeah, I really That's appreciate way of putting it <laughs> yeah, like a double, it's just a double whammy. And it's, it's hard. Like it can be hard for people to recognize they're blind spots, right? Because by definition yeah. of blind spot, you're not aware of it because you're not seeing it. So um, like if it's like, if there's someone in your life who's like <clears throat> blatantly racist, it's like really obvious because they're like, these people yeah. suck. But <clears throat> those subtle forms of your own, you know, blind spots or biases or your own, you know, racism, you have to acknowledge that, okay, it's a form of 
racism to, to kind of have this default assumption that someone put this up and I can't find it. I've been trying to find it, but someone put a beautiful piece of art up that said, not everyone with a chronic illness is a skinny white woman. And it had a picture of yeah. like an African-American man. And I really want to give credit to that person. I just can't find it again. So if you know, tell me who that is. I, but, actually, I actually think I know where that is. Oh. I might be able to find it for you. But yeah, like, no, you just reminded me of a story as well um, that I had about like, just about ra racial microaggressions as well. Um, like it, this was towards the start of the pandemic, I think. Um, and I was picking up like my medications from the hospital. Um, which happened to be methotrexate um, injections in the injection form. Yeah, and I was getting it from the pharmacist and the pharmacist was having such a hard time struggle with spelling my name and saying my name. Um, and I did literally everything to make it easier for, for this pharmacist. Um, I wrote it down, I spelled it out. I, I, it, my hand wasn't, <laughs> at the, my handwriting wasn't the best either. So I even wrote it on my phone. I did. Uh, spelt it out I can't even remember what else I did but I, I did so much for him to find my medication 20 minutes later I finally got my medication I was stood in that queue for 20 minutes trying to get to um, get him to find my medication at one point he put me to one side um, so he could serve the people behind me as well and I, like that's a really good example of a racial microaggression because in my belief I, I know from like from like a you know if you never come across a name like mine then it can be quite difficult and I, I'm always understanding of that but when it becomes to the point that you're actually making me feel like I'm a burden or that I shouldn't even be there or you know that kind of feeling is a racial or microaggression and as much as I wanted to you know say it to him um, it just wasn't the time because I just wanted to get out of there, um, you know, feeling, being in a hospital in the middle of COVID times, I just wanted to get in and out. Um, but this pharmacist did not let me do that. And it, yeah, it, it, I, it, it just came to my mind as you were saying all that, because it, it's such a good example where he could have done better and he could have just actually listened instead of getting frustrated that my name was, you know, so-called different, I guess. Um, but my name is something that I live with and you know I can't change that and I absolutely love my name as well making me feel like my name is ugly is ugly for you to do basically yeah. is all I have to say about that but I will constantly share that story until people <laughs> understand what it is like yeah. no it's it's so important I know even you know in my son's daycare for example I remember there was quite a few children with non- Caucasian sounding names or my son's name is Charlie mm -hmm. and there were other ones and the daycare providers like they did a really good job I remember because I kind of am trying to you know become better at being aware of these things and because I wanted to pronounce the other children's names correctly and they really worked at it and it, it makes yeah. a difference you know um I remember <laughs> although okay sorry this is a total side note but my son he has really good auditory skills like he he hears the tiny differences between things. And one of his teachers was from China and she was like doing her very best to pronounce everything as very best she could. But at some point yeah. with people's 
accents, it's harder for them to hear, you know, in the same way as for me mm-hmm. being Caucasian, it's hard. For, I have a hard time with it sometimes too. And so my son would correct, he's a Caucasian little kid trying to correct his Chinese daycare teacher on the pronunciation of an Indian child's name. I was like, whoa, <sighs> this is like very complex. But anyway, but yeah, the point is tr- make an effort, right? People should make an effort. Yeah. And not subtly, like you said, microaggression, communicate that someone else's name is wrong or worse. Yeah, Yeah, that's such a great example. And I hope other, you know, um, white people recognize that, like, if when we say things like, or when I say things like, you know, white privilege, privilege isn't, it doesn't mean you did anything you did anything to get it or not have it. You you just mm-hmm. have it. Like like I don't have a hundred percent health privilege, right? Because I have a health condition, but I a hundred percent have white privilege because I'm white. <laughs> like, and it doesn't mean that, yeah. it doesn't mean that I can't be like. It's not like and therefore I suck. And it just but it means like we have to not be defensive about it and say like it's literally means that I have advantages that are unearned just due to my race and the way people might treat yeah. me because of that. And it's just to recognize that and acknowledge it. And the other people don't have that privilege. Make sure you're using it in the, the correct way as well. Um, because sometimes when I feel like I, I call someone out for being racist, I feel like I'm going to get a very aggressive person back at me. So for the most part, I don't call anyone out for it um, to keep myself safe. But if we could, and it was met with someone who was understanding and went, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I'll do better next time. I completely understand. If we had that kind of reaction, that's using your white privilege in the best way. It's using, actually using the privilege instead of just having it be there and, you know, taking advantage of it. That's what I'm trying to say, <laughs> taking advantage of yeah. it. Um, it. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's so, I mean, I'm sure everyone listening is just like, I want to know more. I want to hear more. So I'm going to put a bunch of, um, you know, links in the show notes to your website, but where can they find you? Uh, yeah. So on Instagram, I'm at chronically Brown, uh, Twitter, it's at chronic Brown. Um, and our, our website is, uh, chronically That's wonderful. Well, thank you so, so much for your time today. I, I learned a lot. I really hope the audience did too. And, and thanks again. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's actually been a pleasure talking to you as well. Like uh, I've really enjoyed speaking about all these things and having someone who's um, you know open-minded and wanting to actually learn about these things. It's always a pleasure to have someone like that around. So thank you. Oh, but I try. I mean, again, I'm not perfect. Like I said, I've made the yoga joke before. And so I think it's just important to within yourself, if you're in the predominant um, racial group, if you're you know, the privileged group to be able to, recognize that you're going to make mistakes. You're going to say the wrong thing sometimes, but it doesn't mean you should stop trying or get defensive yeah. about it, you know? Yeah. Anyway. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Rheumatoid Arthritis Roadmap, an online course that I created from scratch to help people live a full life with rheumatoid arthritis from social and emotional aspects of coping with rheumatoid arthritis to simple physical strategies you can use every day to manage things like pain and fatigue. You can find out more on my website, myarthritislife.net, where I also have lots of free educational resources, videos, and more. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. 
This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.